Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Connecting the Dots. My name is Mariana Marx and I'm Asimus World Foundation Executive Director. The COVID pandemic has brought public health to the forefront of our concerns for the 21st century and show us how justice, politics, economic, education, and every sphere of our lives is inextricably linked to public health. The way indigenous peoples and local communities were disproportionately affected during the pandemic is a tragic example of this. Their exclusion from strategic decision-making and lack of access to healthcare services aggravated pre-existing structural inequalities. Now, more than ever, recognizing these inequities in indigenous health can help us reflect on the broader issues of human rights, sovereignty, sustainability, and the fundamental role indigenous voices must play in shaping our future. It is equally important to look at indigenous health from another angle, one that focuses on valuing the wisdom these communities have accumulated over thousands of years about our bodies and how the surrounding environment affects them. Traditional knowledge is now beginning to earn recognition as an essential tool to face our present-day challenges regarding our health, the health of our planet, and the way the two are profoundly connected. There's no one better suited to help us think over these issues than Dr. Nicole Vettlers. She's a member of the Denunukwe First Nation, a professor at the Department of Indigenous Health at the University of North Dakota, and a co-founder and chair of the Arctic Indigenous Wellness Foundation. Dr. Redvers is also an internationally recognized researcher and author whose work alongside indigenous communities worldwide actively contributes to a better future. Dr. Redvers, good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I would like to start at the beginning. Um, as a member of the Deninuclear First Nation in the Northwest Territories, when did you first become interested in the field of health and why did you decide to make it your life's work? Asicho, hmm. thank you for the question and thanks for having me here. Um, one of the, the important contexts, of course, uh, between many of the indigenous peoples of the world is the um, the similarities, of course, on the overarching element of colonialism, but also the unique geopolitical circumstances that exist within certain countries and within North America, but also, of course, within Ototoro, New Zealand and Australia. We had the legacy of boarding schools or residential schools where uh, indigenous children, including my mother and my grandmother, were forcibly removed from their uh, uh, families to attend schools for the purposes of killing the Indian and saving the child. And as a result of that, many of our uh, First Nations peoples uh, within my region experienced for the first time Western healthcare within those schools. So that was the first exposure to healthcare. And you can imagine, of course, that that might not have been the most positive experience mm -hmm. um, within a, an environment that was full of trauma and full of many complex uh, um, experiences, in, including uh, physical, mental, and sexual abuse as well. So that uh, that first 
exposure to healthcare very much permeated the experience, but also the levels of trust that uh, Indigenous peoples within uh, the region see and, and experience through modern day healthcare. And because of that, we see a lot of our peoples uh, avoiding healthcare until things get uh, very much worse. Um, and then unfortunately, mm -hmm. at that point, it becomes very difficult to, to treat. Um, so I had noticed this when I was uh, growing up uh, within my community and uh, even later on uh, in, in terms of young adulthood, the amount of uh, people that were obviously suffering but avoiding healthcare because of the uh, environment of a lack of trustworthiness. And, and I just kept thinking to myself that, you know, how how bad is it that our people would rather suffer at home than go to seek care um, that's supposed to be welcoming and, and helping and supportive for people. Mm -hmm. So that really was a motivation for me to um, think about going within the health realm and space and figuring out ways for um, our people to be supported in a way that made made sense for them, but but in a way that um, they could trust it and be, be excited and happy about receiving care mm -hmm. from. Thank you. Dr. Weber, before we go into your work specifically, it will be indispensable to hear about the living health issues Indigenous communities face today. Uh, what are they? And uh, having in mind incredible diversity that characterizes Indigenous communities, how can we address these cross-cutting issues while still respecting the distinct character of each community? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly important point that you bring up because there's this risk of homogenizing or, um, you know, bringing together uh, concepts and constructs and issues with Indigenous people uh, without really being mindful of the substantial diversity, the heterogeneity of, of communities across the globe, not only in terms of their experiences, but also the context of their experiences. Now, having said that, because of the shared history of colonization, because of the shared history of of uh, um, forced removal from lands um, because of the history of loss of culture due to um, modern society ways encroaching or or in sometimes uh, forcibly imparting itself on communities. We do see some shared issues across uh, the indigenous world. And unfortunately, those uh, elements have not been improving substantially over the years. Um, basic elements, even such as mortality rates, the year of, of age or life expectancy of indigenous peoples is substantially lower, not only within uh, low-income countries, but also in middle-income countries and even in high-income countries uh, as well. Uh, we see uh, substantial rates uh, uh, of, of different sometimes uh, of things like infectious disease. Again, uh, often more prominent within low-income countries, but we also see tuberculosis outbreaks continuing within high-income countries. In fact, right at this moment in the eastern Arctic uh, portion of Canada, in the community of um, uh, Pangerton, there is an outbreak of uh, tuberculosis in the community that has been going on for months and months. Um, these are conditions that you would think in these types of situations and countries that would be treatable, which they are, but because of the marginalization and structural inequities of communities, we still see these types of things occurring even within countries in so-called Canada. Uh, Lastly, I'll note uh, one of the minimized uh, uh, health um, 
concerns that we have within many Indigenous communities across the world is high levels of youth suicide. Um, mm -hmm. And that is cross-cutting, unfortunately, due to many complex factors that we have. But it is another one that I think is not often talked about as it should be because it is a substantial crisis in many communities. Going back in a very important uh, point that uh, you, you just uh, uh, mentioned, you know, I, recently I read that also officials announced that life expectancy for Native Americans and Alaska Natives fell by six and a half years and how these indigenous communities were nearly three times as likely to be hospitalized with COVID and more than twice as likely to die of it. I, I presume that this announcement uh, uh, didn't uh, surprise you, unfortunately. No, it, it did not surprise uh, many of us. It was just another layer on the structural uh, inequities that many of our communities face. But at the same time, too, you know, despite uh, the discussions and, and the absolute reality of these disparities that exist, the hardships that exist, and frankly, the, the racism and the discrimination that leads to some of these health inequities uh, within many countries around the globe. There's also many strengths that we also want to balance out and emphasize. And in fact, uh, just noting, as you had stated within the North American context, American Indians were the leaders in vaccination uptakes uh, for COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic. They were leading the way in terms of the percentage of community members who were uh, getting vaccinations due to a strong public health mobilization response that they had, including additional public health measures uh, such as uh, mandating uh, mask wearing, closing off borders, uh, closing casinos. There was a number of things Things that were done. So despite these inequities, we also saw the balance of a lot of strengths come from these communities, because oftentimes, despite the inequities, they often have solutions, they often have mm -hmm. ways of dealing with crisis, they just are not given the opportunity and sometimes the ability funding or the flexible structures to allow those solutions to actually come forward and, and be, um, be solved. Indigenous communities face a lot of barriers to accessing healthcare. Uh, but even when healthcare is available, it, it often, like you already mentioned before, it often fails to be culturally sensitive. So, and I think it would be important, you know, uh, for you know uh, all of us that are uh, hearing then the the podcast. Uh, how important is it to understand a community's worldview? in order to provide adequate health care. Well, I think even going back to what the definition of health care is, um, you know, health care in its current conceptualization and what we often think about is very much within a Western domain or a Western mm -hmm. worldview. So even the concept of health care and how we think through it is, is by its very nature uh, uh, through a Western orientation. So mm -hmm. because of that, you know, if we root ourselves within that concept that that is what healthcare is, then automatically we're in a comparative mode of trying to say, okay, well, how does an Indigenous community's view compared to what is now? When in reality, for true self-determination for Indigenous communities, we should actually be flipping that around or flipping the question around to say, well, how can uh, Indigenous um, well-being and Indigenous communities' uh, ways of, of knowing and healing be a uh, 
uh, encompassing or how can Western systems actually adapt to that as opposed to the other way around? Um, and really that is the, the fundamental issue that we see is we don't have a lot of systems that are centering indigenous peoples, centering indigenous communities, centering indigenous traditional healing and their knowledges, and then asking, okay, well, how does Western healthcare support that? How, you know, where are the things that are needed and beneficial and, and how do we merge it into our systems as opposed to the other way around? We're, we're often having to force healthcare systems um, uh, uh, onto our people in a way that doesn't really work. So, you know, th that really is the base of thought. And I often like to switch that question around a bit because it really does change the conversation. It does. And, uh, uh, and I was thinking, you know, that, uh, you know, medical research has still fallen short regarding Indigenous communities. And you just touched also a very important point, which is the colonial mindset that mindset that still permeates uh, Western research methods. And uh, so in, in, in your opinion, Dr. Radvers, how can we decolonize methodology? And is it the scientific community heading towards a more comprehensive knowledge democracy? Yeah, well, the, the idea of knowledge democracy, I think, is fundamental here because we have not had knowledge democracy in any way, shape or form with Western scientific hegemony really being, you know, um, put across the world, um, you know, from from one end of the pole to the other end of, of the pole, without much room for conversation, uh, you know, otherwise. And there's been two big movements happening within some institutional settings, especially within global health work, of course, this decolonizing word has really been you know a forefront we've even seen terminology such as indigenization coming about too and really some fundamental reflections on institutional systems but also on peoples on researchers and many from indigenous communities asking you know is it possible for a western institution to de decolonize is it possible for a western researcher to decolonize you know and many indigenous peoples will push back on that and say no you know it, the whole idea, the whole concepts around what it means to, to decolonize, so to speak, is really a matter of uh, it being a political movement led by Indigenous peoples that focuses on the advancement of Indigenous self-determination. So really, is it uh, uh, Indigenous community members that are seeking to decolonize their own systems um, or, you know, uh, are we talking more about indigenizing Western systems? Because as soon as you indigenize, when you eye something, it means that something wasn't indigenous to start with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you have to indigenize it, it means it wasn't indigenous to start with. Whereas mm -hmm. from a decolonizing movement, it is starts with indigenous. It starts with indigenous. There is no Western component. And then it doesn't mean that you have to reject Western research. It doesn't mean that you reject mm -hmm. Western institutions, but the indigenous community indigenous people choose whether or not they want to accept or adopt certain western attributes within those institutional settings as a part of self-determination so those are really two key pieces and for researchers and institutions to decolonize so to speak really means that you're um, ensuring that indigenous peoples have self-determination to determine their own 
research ways, institutional ways, healthcare ways, and being supportive and, and, and um, not only supportive, but amplifying the ability for that to occur. Um, so really it's opening up the, the, the space to allow decolonization uh, to occur as led um, by indigenous peoples. You have contributed immensely to knowledge democracy by helping to co-develop the first Indigenous health PhD program in North America at University of North Dakota. Uh, tell us about some of the research projects developed under this program and how they demonstrate the importance of creating research programs focused explicitly on Indigenous health. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the you know, one of the, the most basic yet, you know, brilliant statements comes from one of the most cited Indigenous scholars, Linda Tuia Smith, who's uh, um, a Maori Indigenous woman. And she wrote a lot on decolonizing research. And she very simply said, when Indigenous peoples become the researchers and not merely the research, the activity of research is transformed, questions are framed differently, priorities are ranked differently, problems are defined differently, and people participate on different terms. Because when you have questions that come from your own worldview, then it's mm -hmm. applicable to communities. And one example at the University of North Dakota is, is um, um, with the uh, uh, support of um, now previous uh, professor at uh, the University of North Dakota, Dr. Donald Warren, uh, but also a number of other researchers and, and support people within the department uh, received a large bunk of funds from the National Institute of Health uh, uh, to create an Indigenous Trauma and Resiliency Center uh, for research. And one of the funded projects under there uh, was a project that I am running, which is an Indigenous uh, traditional food project. And what we're looking at is we've constantly had narratives of the trauma, of course, um, from historical and present day events affecting our communities and the way even that our, our physiology expresses itself. So I was interested in turning that narrative around and say, okay, well, yes, all of these harms uh, have happened and continue to occur, but how can we actually look at the positive effects physiologically from some of our uh, uh, ceremonial uh, items, from foods, from cultural practices, um, and being able to showcase the strengths of communities and the ways that our traditional foods are able to heal. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that you know, the University of North Dakota has ever run a clinical trial, uh, because funny enough, foods are considered a clinical trial under uh, the National Institutes of Health, which is always a bit funny. Um, mm -hmm. But it's the first time also that we've had 100% research participants within such a yeah. study that are American Indian. Um, and we thought originally, because everybody always says within the research, you know, it's hard to recruit mm -hmm. Indigenous participants because, you know, of the mistrust with research. Um, but what was amazing with this project is that we had um, and have had so far, despite only being a couple months in within a very not a huge town. I mean, we're based in Grand Forks, not mm -hmm. a huge population there. We've had mm -hmm. close to 130 inquiries on our 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 
study and we've almost met our recruitment um, goals uh, within about a third of the time that we were predicting because of the interest from our communities when you ask the right questions that are meaningful to them and fit with the needs and the goals of the communities lo and behold you know it's it maybe it's not really about the research it's about the types of questions and the types of uh, methods and the, the mm-hmm. uh, types of outcomes that we're trying to achieve you know, it just came to my mind also, you know, it's a successful PhD program that you uh, created. Do you think other universities, you know, around the United States and, and perhaps even in, in Canada will also uh, implement, you know, also this, this, this PhD programs? Do you think that's... Uh, Mm-hmm. And I should just note a clarification that, you know, this program was co-created by yes. a group of Indigenous scholars, uh, uh, including Dr. Melanie Naidu. I mentioned Dr. Donald Warren mm-hmm. already. Um, you know, there's there's just been so many amazing people as a part of this uh, program. And, you know, this is the first this was the first program in North America, you know, mm-hmm. that started yes. in 2020. And, you know, it's kind of sad in some instances to think that it took until 2020 to get the first Indigenous health PhD program in North America, let alone, you know, in in most of the world, considering from a global context, although we've had Maori health programs and and Native Hawaiian programs, um, the PhD level programs from a global context really have been lacking. And I would hope to see that this you know, is is just sort of the the, the leverage point that starts to create mm-hmm. more interest uh, because we in our first year had over three hundred inquiries in our program and we could, we only had originally well we thought about only having twelve spots we ended up accepting way more students than that because mm-hmm. we 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 were just having to turn so many students away which just goes mm-hmm. to show the interest and the need for this topic area we need more institutions coming on board supporting these types of programs which means we need more institutions prioritizing the higher indigenous scholars which has not been a priority uh, to date because you cannot run these types of programs unless you have uh, indigenous scholars as a part in, in, in leading these programs and institutions in my mind. Uh, you are the co-founder and chair of the Arctic Business Wellness Foundation, uh, through which the Inuit, Deme, and uh, Métis came together to culturally revive traditional healing services and, and practices. What led to the creation of the HWIF and what are its most relevant achievements so far? And also, uh, what is the importance of promoting health practices health practices rooted in in the land? Absolutely. Well, the the work of the Arctic Indigenous Wellness Foundation really was the the evolution um, um, and and the continuation of work by a Denisovene elder by the name of Francois Paulette, in addition to an elders council that had worked in the area for many years. But unfortunately, we're facing many challenges. Uh, so myself, as well as Elder Bessa Blondin, who's a Satu elder, and Elder Rasi Nishalik, who's an Inuk elder, originally from Pangerton in uh, what is now Nunavut in Canada, uh, came together to bring the Arctic Indigenous Wellness Foundation forward um, through a gathering of elders uh, from both the Northwest Territories and Nunavut, which is the northern regions uh, within uh, the Canadian uh, subarctic and Arctic. And it was very clear from those discussions the need from our communities because of many of the things that we've talked about so far 
for our people to have self-determined ways of, of well-being. Um, and we really wanted to pro provide a platform where Indigenous peoples finally could speak for ourselves within this region and area because we don't often have the ability to have leadership. We had a lot of work and a lot of, of, of difficulty at the beginning finding funding uh, for such mm -hmm. an initiative. Um, it was very challenging, in fact, because many modern day funders require evidence uh, that just doesn't exist in the Western sense for many of mm -hmm. our ways of knowing and ways of being. And we really pushed back at, at funders who were wanting to... Um, gain information uh, that was sacred or uh, that was a part of or outside of our traditional protocols of sharing and reporting because it just didn't um, make sense with the types of projects that we were running. But we thank for, thankfully were able to garner uh, the 2017 Arctic Inspiration Prize, which was a $1 million prize to really start mm -hmm. and leverage the work um, of bringing together what is now um, our best achievement in my mind, uh, the creation of an urban land-based healing camp, which is a, a land healing camp, but based in an urban center, uh, which doesn't often happen because mm -hmm. we have many unhoused relatives, uh, many of our Indigenous community members live in urban centers now, but uh, don't have a lot of connection to land bases. So in that urban camp, we have traditional healers, we have traditional counselors, uh, we offer traditional food when we can, and we provide a safe space for those uh, to come and receive support from the many challenges of life that are experienced, no matter their background, um, and no matter where they come from in the north. And it's been now in operation, uh, this is our fifth year, and we're just uh, so so happy on uh, um, the amount of support that we've received from community in that regard and, and hopefully for years to come. Yes, I, I hope to, and I wish the, the same for the amazing work you're doing. Dr. Radvers, your book, <laughs> The Science of the Sacred, Bridging Global Indigenous Medicine Systems and Modern Scientific Principles, comes at a time that the, the Western world is, is finally starting to recognize indigenous knowledge as a fundamental tool to address our present day challenges. Uh, what are some of the top ways indigenous knowledge anticipated contemporary technology? And how can indigenous values and, and concepts such as interconnectedness and species equity play a role in shaping our relationship with technology and how we use it to protect our planet. Mm. I think the, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. There's been this fundamental increase um, within many different fields, circles, disciplines, governments on indigenous traditional knowledge. Um, and in some cases, the push is is so fast, uh, um, so fast paced right now that a lot of folks within Western spaces are getting so um, focused on the knowledge piece that they're forgetting about the people. So I always like mm -hmm. to highlight that when I have this conversation because it's really not about indigenous knowledge. It's really mm -hmm. about indigenous peoples who hold mm -hmm. knowledge, but they hold that knowledge only when they hold their, their land for the most part and, and how land rights really comes into the conversation. Because when we talk about Indigenous knowledge and its benefits in various fields, we can't separate that from land rights um, be, because that's where the knowledge comes from that we mm -hmm. that we hold um, and, and be mindful of that in our conversations um, and not forgetting about the peoples that, that hold that knowledge and hold the decisions about whether or not to share that knowledge and when to share that knowledge. 
So because of that, it creates a complex landscape um, of mm -hmm. differential rights within communities around the, the globe and how and what risk of um, extraction may or may not occur from utilizing that knowledge in a way that benefits the wider world, but may not necessarily benefit the community itself. Um, and we're seeing this more and more with the um, interest in technologies where historical patterns of people coming in to extract knowledge from Indigenous peoples to use for wider purpose, but without the collaboration, without the, the respect of intellectual property rights, without respect of data sovereignty of those very communities. So it's a very delicate balance of trying to think through scale up of Indigenous solutions while at the same time protecting the full and fundamental rights of Indigenous communities through these crises that we face. And that's a challenge that many mm -hmm. communities are going to face in a conversation we really haven't had to any great extent in communities is to to what to what uh, um, you know, to what extent do we break traditional protocols and share things that we're not supposed to share because of the state mm -hmm. of the, the crisis that the planet faces? And, you know, when do we get to that point? And, and, and what are our protocols in that? Because we really haven't faced, um, well, we faced many things throughout histories, but, but this one is, is very unique uh, today. But having said that, um, you know, there's many communities that are willing to share. And speaking of technology, um, I just think of uh, Dr. Tyson Yankapora, who wrote the the book. He's um, from uh, uh, he's Aboriginal from uh, Australia, uh, mm -hmm. and it's uh, Sand Talk: Indigenous Thinking, um, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And he runs a podcast and a lot of discussion around the merging of technology and indigenous knowledge. Um, and in fact, even into artificial intelligence and how knowledge, indigenous mm -hmm. knowledge systems impact. So there are a few folks within these spaces that are really bridging the modern world and the traditional mm -hmm. world together into these very interesting discussions to figure out, you know, how do we how do we dance this dance going forward that respects our protocols, but also ensures that we have survivance as as a humanity um and but as a as a planet as a whole and i think it's going to be the next level of complex conversations that indigenous nations will be facing over the following uh, even one two five years dr rivers thank you so much for this fascinating and rich conversation we covered so many important issues i just would like to invite you to share some final thoughts yeah, I, I don't think I have anything uh, else to, to add at this point in time. I think we covered a lot of uh, good components of need and, and, and pressing issues that are facing the community. And uh, thanks for the conversation today. Masi Cho. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.